Well, any of you willing to admit that at some point in your life, you felt like you were just at the absolute bottom of humanity? Anyone? Okay, yeah. I, I think if you're human, you've had at least one moment of that. I had the I shouldn't say the joy. I had the multiple opportunities throughout school of being reminded that I resided in the lower echelon of humanity, whether it be because my first name was a girl's first name, or because my last name just conveniently rhymes with nerd and turd, or whenever I was picked last to be on the football team out on the playground, I just was regularly reminded that, Aaron, you aren't quite as worth others. In fact, in fifth grade, I received a note from a girl. And in the note, she indicated that she actually liked me. Now, the fact that a girl would even know that I walked the earth was remarkable, let alone that she seemed to have some sort of romantic feelings towards me. And so, naturally, that meant I automatically liked her, too. And so it was near Valentine's Day, and so I got this little Valentine, and it had two little bunnies on it, kind of cuddling together. And so I wrote her name next to one, and mine next to the other, and I slipped it into her locker. The backfire in my plan was that her locker mate found the note first, and proceeded to show it to everyone else in fifth grade, and she proceeded to get resoundly made fun of and mocked because she liked Aaron Bird. And I was routinely, I, I was very quickly told, no, I, Aaron, decide I don't like you because I don't think she could have endured that kind of mocking the rest of her fifth grade year. So my chances that my first girlfriend fell flat very, very quickly. Now, I can look back and chuckle over it because I now have an amazing wife. Uh, I have not lost any sleep or tear over my 10-year-old heart crushing, but still it was devastating in the moment. But even when you are in your 20s, or 30s, or 40s, no matter what age you are, those rejections still can hurt. It it could be a romantic rejection, but sometimes it's the job rejection. You you get passed over on the promotion. You you don't even get the interview. Or you make it to number two, and you find out they want the other person. You're not quite good enough for the job. Or or perhaps it's when you get uh, reminded, when you drive home and you pull into your driveway, your neighbor's having yet another party and you are once again not invited. Or when you log onto Facebook and you see your friends having these amazing vacations or they just bought a new house and it looks so nice and big and you're just trying to make ends meet month to month. Or when you run into an old friend and they seem to be having their fourth or fifth kid and you're still waiting to have your first, you don't know why God isn't giving you a child. Or when in your quiet moments you still hear your dad or a coach or a teacher tell you you're not going to amount to anything. It hurts. You see someone who's your age, and they have all this passion. They seem to have figured out their passion in life, their, their, their purpose. And you're wondering, like, man, will I ever figure it out? Like, maybe when I grow up, and then it hits you, I am grown up. When am I going to figure this out? And we live life thinking that maybe I'm not as worth what other people are worth. Maybe I just don't have meaning. I think all of us are seeking for meaning. We seek it in all these areas, job, family, income, our clothing, what we drive. And yet it always seems 
to elude us. Well, this week, we're going to look at the story of some fellow worthless individuals. We're going to look at these outsiders, these shepherds. If they had had Facebook, they'd be the kind of people that would only have six or seven friends, and one of them would be their mom. But yet, what we're going to look at is not how they overcame their meaninglessness. Instead, we're going to look at God's view of the lowly. How does God look at the worthless of the world? Because I think what we discover is not someone who just bucked up, pulled up by their bootstraps, and and overcame their worthlessness. Instead, we're going to see how God's view changes everything. So before we open up to Luke chapter 2, let's pray. Father, pray that you would just make this a great morning, that you would remind us of how you view the lowly, And that somehow through that, it would remind us that we have immense meaning in you. So God, I pray that ultimately this wouldn't be about what I want to say. This would be about what you are going to say to us through your scriptures and through your spirit. So Father, open our ears and hearts to what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So if you brought a Bible or a Bible app, open up to Luke chapter 2, the famous Christmas passage. Luke chapter 2. As you're turning there, uh, this is week 2 of our Seek series. Last week, we looked at Seek contentment. We looked at the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2, and we saw Mary and Joseph's story. And what we saw was that they uh, went through the hell I mean, through the travel, through the pregnancy, the the barn, I mean, everything was really, really rough. And yet, we skipped over to verse 19, and we saw something remarkable. We saw Mary have contentment. In, In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the difficulty, she treasured everything that was taking place up. And so we looked at how did she do that, and we saw that the content of her contentment was God's word and God's plan. And so if you follow Jesus, then the content of your contentment needs to be God's word and God's plan as evidenced through Jesus. This week, we get to continue on with the story. We now move from verse 7 to verse 8. We move from Mary and Joseph to the shepherds. And just to make things more interesting, I've invited Lindsay to come up and read the passage today because her voice is probably a little more nicer to listen to than mine. So she's going to read verses 1, I mean 8 through 24. So Luke, and you can just use that mic right there. Quite that tall. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you the good news of the great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on the earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. With the angels went away from the, into the heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened with the Lord that has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that has been told to them concerning this child, and all who heard it, wondering at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering in her heart, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it has been told to them. Great. Thank you so much, Lindsay. 
All right, so a little bit of background on shepherds. Uh, Shepherds were stereotypically the outcasts, the outsiders of their society. Now, I say stereotypically because I'm sure that there were some that were not. Some shepherds had probably acquired quite a large flock, and in that day and age, that would indicate wealth. And if you were wealthy, that was usually a sign of God's blessing upon you. And so they would probably have become some prominent members of their community. And so there would be some shepherds that would be well-respected, liked, and, and just not the outsider, if you will. However, I think some of these rich shepherds wouldn't necessarily want to just go and spend the night out with their sheep. They'd much prefer to be back home with their wife, their children. I mean, house is a little more comfortable, or maybe in their tent, get out of the elements. And so because they're wealthy enough, they would hire people to serve. They were basically poor peasants who were unemployed. And they would hire them to spend the night with the, the flocks. I think it's these poor peasants that the ones that developed the bad reputation for the name shepherd. First of all, because they were out with the flocks, they weren't able to keep all of the religious laws. And that would therefore mean they were ceremonially unclean. And so when they could be back in Jerusalem or wherever they could go to a temple, they wouldn't be allowed in to worship God. There were certain things they would have to do to become clean. And so that, when you're a religious-driven society, that right there keeps you on the fringes, keeps you away and outside. Also, some of them were poor. The poor in that day and age were looked down upon as if God didn't give them favor. Favor. So if God wasn't giving them favor, maybe they had done something wrong, they're sinful, they're really dirty, and therefore that would also keep them pushed outside. And if they were poor, maybe some of them got desperate. Maybe some of them actually began to steal, just trying to get some food or make ends meet. And so now they develop this reputation of being untrustworthy. And so people didn't like really being around shepherds. Plus, they spent a, excuse me, a lot of time alone with sheep. That right there is odd. And so maybe they just, maybe they talked to the sheep and they just weren't all together. And so these, these shepherds were known as being untrustworthy, unliked. They were the outsiders. They were the outcasts. They were the lowly. That's why it's such a big deal that the angel decides to make the news known not to kings, not to high priests, but to shepherds. And what this story does is it tells me three things. It tells me that God delights to invite the lowly, that God identifies with the lowly, and God exalts the lowly. He, I, he invites the lowly, he identifies with the lowly, and he exalts the lowly. All right, let's look at these three. First, God delights to invite the lowly. All right, when, uh, by the way, and it, did all of you get your invitation a few months ago when the Pope came to America? N- no? Yeah, yeah, me neither. All right, but yet President Obama was right there on the tarmac. I mean, usually most dignities when they show up they're, they're greeted by the president at the White House, but not the Pope. I mean, President Obama was there on the tarmac to greet him right when he came off the, the plane. And, and then you saw all the U.S. congressmen, they're just going nuts over this guy. He shows up and they're greeting him and they're kissing his ring and, and it just goes on and on. And then I found out that, you know, the, the Pope was at a couple of like con- conferences, conventions, and there were actors and actresses that were invited to speak. And it was like a who's who of America greeting this Pope. It's what you would expect when the famous, the well-known, the bigwigs of our society show up. 
you expect the other famous, well-known, and dignitaries to show up and greet them. But not God. God's not sending a postcard to Pharaoh—not to Pharaoh, sorry—to Herod and saying, Hey, you're invited to the birthday party of my son. You know, it's, it's not the high priest getting the phone call saying, hey, guess what? We're going to hold a little shindig. You're invited. Bring all the guys. No, it's shepherds, the outcasts, the outsiders, the lowly. It, we see it start right there in uh, verse 8. I want you to put yourself in the sandals of these shepherds. They're sitting out on the field. They're sitting with their sheep. It's dark outside. And you got to remember, this is before electricity. And so even if they're somewhat close to Bethlehem, there isn't like light emanating up. Maybe a few lamps were still lit, but it's dark. Can you imagine the view of the stars? Have you ever been able to get completely away from a city? No light around? Man, you see the sky in a whole different way. That was there night after night. And so they're sitting there in the dark And suddenly, in verse 9, it says that an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. So imagine, you're sitting there, you're gazing up at the stars, your sheep are kind of quiet in close, you know, maybe it's a cool night, and so they're huddled together to stay warm. And suddenly, boom, someone turns on the high beams directly in your eyes. And so you're shielding them, and then you hear this voice. What's your reaction I doubt it's like, oh, cool, I wonder what's going on. No, you probably just wet your robes, all right? You're freaked out. That's why the angel's first words to them in verse 10 are, fear not. He doesn't want them to be afraid because he wants them to hear the invitation. And then he gives it. He tells them, you're invited to go and meet the Messiah, But then notice down in verse 14 and 13, it wasn't just one angel. As soon as that one angel gets on speaking, it says that suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. God wants this invitation to be heard. So he sends an angel choir. And I imagine it says in there that they were praising God and said that they were just speaking. I would imagine that even if they spoke monotone, that monotone in heaven sounds like the most glorious melody on earth. This sounds like singing, and this choir is letting it known the Messiah has been born. The Jews had been waiting for centuries upon centuries upon centuries for this Messiah. It had been prophesied over and over and over, and the Jews began to tell each other, well, when Messiah comes, when Messiah comes, when Messiah comes, and now he's here. Suddenly, the shepherds flip from being afraid to being curious. And a little bit, we're going to see him be full of joy. But God found delight in inviting the lowly, the outcast, the outsider. This isn't the only time in Scripture that we see this happen. In fact, when Jesus grows up, becomes an itinerant preacher, starts traveling around as a rabbi, telling people that the kingdom of God is at hand, he starts working all these miracles, people start flocking out to hear him. Jesus would tell stories, and we know them as parables. And one parable he tells is the story of a king who has a son who's getting married. And so the king is putting on a lavish banquet. Everything's set and ready, and then go, servants, invite everyone. 
And so they go to the bigwigs, the dignitaries, the mayor, the governor. They invite everyone to come to the king's wedding banquet. The son is getting married. And yet they're all too busy. Oh, I'm so sorry. I can't come. I've got to go check out this new field that I just bought. Oh, no, no, I I can't come. I'm I'm going on vacation. Oh, no, I, I can't come. I've got this going on. And the servants come back to the king and they said, well, no one can come. They're all too busy. And so the king's like, well, the food's ready. The banquet hall is here. So just go. Invite everyone, even those out on the street. Invite the lowly. The parable is of God. God is the king. Jesus is that son. The son is going to marry the church. And God is going to fill up his banquet hall, heaven, with the lowly. It isn't the ones who on earth look like the best. No, it's going to be the commoner. It's going to be the homeless guy. It's going to be the one you'd never expect. And he's going to gather them in, and he's going to throw a huge banquet for them. God delights in inviting the lowly. But not only that, he also identifies with the lowly. Look there in verse 12. It says there that the the sign would be a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. As we saw last week, a manger is a feeding trough. So here is the king of kings, the creator of the earth, being born into human flesh, and his bed is a straw of hay. I mean, he just laid on the most comfortable thing that they had. Imagine, though, if a poor peasant who's serving as a shepherd— happens to have a family. They're barely making ends meet. His wife gives birth to a baby. What does she do? She probably just wraps him up in some swaddling cloths, whatever she can find, and lays him on the softest thing they have, possibly just laying him in a manger. Jesus, even in his birth, is identifying with the lowly. But not only that, Jesus goes on to identify with the lowly, even in his teaching ministry. Multiple times, Jesus would say, I am the shepherd. Even in, I think it's in John, Jesus says, I am the shepherd. And when John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, uh, passes away, Jesus wants to get away with his disciples. He wants to go up and be alone. He wants to mourn. He wants to grieve. And yet he shows up at the bank and hears this whole flock and throng of people waiting for him. And it says that Jesus saw the people like sheep without a shepherd. And so what does he do? He stops and teaches them. He heals them. He even goes on to feed them. This is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is like a shepherd. Because what does a shepherd do? A shepherd puts the needs of others before his own. That means if a shepherd really likes the view on the north hill, but he knows the grass is better on the south hill, he's going to the south hill. He sets aside his own preference for the sake of his flock and takes them to where they need to go. And ultimately, that's what Jesus did for us. Jesus knew that we as humans were dead in our sins, and the only way our sin could truly, permanently be forgiven was if someone paid the penalty for them. But no one could do it, because if someone else died for others, they'd only be dying for their own sins. So it would take someone sinless, and that would have to be God himself. So Jesus, the only sinless person to ever have walked this earth, went and died a sinner's death in the place of mankind so that our sin could be forgiven. He put our need before his own. He was a shepherd. That's why at Riverwood, we talk about loving like Jesus loved. What did Jesus do? He put the needs of others before his own. If you are a parent, you know this. Before the service, Sean was telling us stories of his kids puking. 
And what does he do? He puts the needs of his kids before his own. I don't want to mess with puke, and yet for the sake of my kids, I do it. If you're a spouse, you know that to have a happy marriage, you've got to put the needs of your spouse before your own. The fastest way to unhappiness is selfishness. But when you begin to live like a shepherd, when you begin to put the needs of others before your own, when you begin to take the low road, then something remarkable happens. And that leads into the next thing, that God not only invites the lowly and invites, I'm sorry, invites the lowly and identifies with the lowly, he also exalts the lowly. You see this especially here in verse uh, 17 and 20. In verse 17, it says that when the shepherds saw it, they made known the saying. So they're going around telling everyone what they've heard, what they've seen, what they've just experienced, which is kind of remarkable because if these shepherds are known as being untrustworthy, if they're the outcasts, if they're kind of the religious unclean, you want to keep away from them. Suddenly the shepherds don't care what anyone think of them. They in that moment aren't thinking, I'm the low of the low. They are so excited. They're so ecstatic. They go out and they tell everyone. It reminds me of the story of the woman at the well. Jesus, uh, in in the book of John, chapter 4, goes uh, to this woman. And it turns out that, yeah, she wasn't married. She had actually had five husbands, and the guy she was with wasn't even her husband. And in that day and age, whoa, they would have a few words for that type of a woman. And yet, Jesus there reveals himself to her as the Messiah. She's so excited about it. She rushes into town and doesn't care what anyone thinks of her and her reputation. She shares with them Jesus. She was exalted in that moment. And the ultimate exaltation we see in Philippians chapter 2. If you know where Philippians is, feel free to flip there. Uh, If you don't, that's okay. I've got the scripture on the screen. But in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is writing to this church in Philippi, and he wants them to understand this concept. There there was some bickering and fighting going on in the church. And so he's trying to tell them, guys, stop fighting. Stop trying to get your own way. Serve one another. Become like, he doesn't use this term, but he's like, become like a shepherd. Take the low road. Put the other person first. Put their needs before your own. And to help them grasp onto this concept, he points them to Jesus. So Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, he says, so have this mind among yourselves, this attitude, this idea like Jesus. Jesus. This attitude, this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, and now he's describing Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, at the absolute high of the highs, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It wasn't something that would be fully understood, but made himself nothing. He took the low road. He made himself lowly. He identified with the lowly, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So not only does God the Son take on human flesh, go the low road, he goes even lower. He dies. And not just dies, he goes through the cross. When the Romans would crucify someone, they would nail them up there naked. Absolute shame. Because it was their way to keep an iron fist over everything. You come against the Roman Empire— You're going on a cross naked. It will be shameful. You will slowly bleed to death. That was their way to keep a grip. And yet, Jesus, knowing that no one could take his life unless he laid it down, humbled himself, took the lowest road possible for us. 
Now notice what God does. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is writing to them saying, guys, stop your bickering, stop your arguing, take the low road, put the needs of others before your own, be like Jesus, love like Jesus loved. Because when you do, when you become lowly, when you put the needs of others before your own, God exalts you. And then there is tremendous joy. And that's what you see then in verse 20 in Luke 2. It says that they they returned back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. When that angel showed up and told them, they were curious. They went and they investigated. They found it to be true. And now they are simultaneously humbled that God would allow them in their low estate to be part of something so great. And yet, at the same time that they're humbled, they are incredibly exalted. There is such joy for them. They got to see and experience what others did not. Not because they were great, but because God was great. And it was his delight to exalt the lowly. And so, God's view, God's interaction with the lowly is to invite them, to identify with them, and exalt them. Now, some of you are listening to this, and you're thinking, yeah, that's awesome. That's great, because I feel like the lowly. You look at your income You look at your job. You look at the kind of car you drive. You look at your closet. And everything seems to remind you that you are the low of the lows. Some of you are sitting here thinking, man, that's that's really good, Aaron. Okay, awesome, great. God loves the lowly, so we should love the lowly too. But me, I'm I'm fine. I've got a great marriage. I've got a great house. You know, I've got a good, respectable job. I'm, I'm not part of the low. But the problem is, We are all part of the low. Because you see, the standard is not each other. You can't sit there and compare your houses and compare your cars and compare your clothing and compare your jobs. That's not the standard. The standard is God. And until you can achieve his standard, you're part of the low. And so therefore, I don't care how pathetic you think you are or how great you think you are. I don't care if you've got the personality of Eeyore or if you've got the ego of Kanye West. You are part of the low. Because Romans 3.23 tells us that all people have sinned and fall short of God's standard. Humans are part of the low. And yet, when you can embrace that, you are actually closer to the kingdom of heaven than you realize because God delights in inviting the low, us. Jesus came to identify with the low, us. And God delights to exalt the low, which is us. When you realize you are part of the low, you are now ready to accept Jesus as a savior. When you walk around this life thinking, I'm good, I'm great, I've got it all, you don't see your need for a Savior. But when you see yourself as in that low echelon, 
when you see yourself a part of humanity, you're now primed and ready to see Jesus for who he really is. The King of heaven, God the Son, who took on flesh, became the low, goes and dies the death that we should have died to invite us into the life that he always intended for us to live. And when we accept that invitation, God exalts us. We move from being dead in our sins to being alive in Christ. We go from being orphans to being kids of the king. It all changes upon Jesus. And then the result is joy, like the shepherds had. This week, I was finishing up reading the latest issue of Relevant magazine. And uh, this month, Relevant made a fairly controversial step. Usually on their cover, they put like a famous movie star or or rock band that's making the headlines, because those are the issues that will sell. But this month, they put on there a little kid who's missing his arm because of the terrors of Boko Haram. And they made this their cover story. And the writer of the article had a chance to sit down with a 13-year-old boy. In fact, I'll grab his name really quick. Danjuma Shikaru. And Danjuma was 13, living in his village. And their village had, there was quite a few herdsmen all around. It was kind of odd, but okay, they're herdsmen. They're taking care of their flocks out in their fields. They go to bed that night. Turns out the herdsmen really Boko Haram in disguise. And they shed off their shepherd's cloaks and revealed guns and begin to slaughter people in the village. Uh, Danjuma took a machete to the head and knocked him out. But the killers decided that wasn't enough. And they began to chop off limbs and mutilate other body parts and left him for dead. The next morning, after the chaos died down, the uh, soldiers left. People were trying to clean up the village and especially collect the dead to bury them. And they came to Danjuma. And as they picked him up, he screamed out in pain. He was alive. And so they rush him to a hospital. And the author of the article actually got to sit down with Danjuma and talk with him. And on Danjuma's face is a smile. How in the world could this 13-year-old kid who's lost his arm... He's blind in one eye because of this machete to the head. He's having to have a catheter now out of his body. Smile. And so the author asks him, and he says, Oh, I I can't be mad at them. I can't be mad at Boko Haram because they don't know what they're doing. They're lost and confused. But I have Jesus. I know the truth. And Jesus is my joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I just sat there reading the article like, I'm a 42-year-old white American who's got a house, kids, cars, job. And if I lost that stuff, I'd probably go into a depression. And here's a lowly African 13-year-old kid who has nothing. And now he has no left arm. He has no sight in his left eye. He's now got a bag for the rest of his life. And he's smiling. How? Because his meaning is not found in his stuff, in his job, in his body. His meaning was found in Jesus. And because he saw Jesus for who he really was, he realized this body is just a temporary thing to hold the spirit that is in us. 
The spirit that Jesus came to die for so that our sins could be forgiven and then our spirits could go and take on spiritual bodies and live with Jesus forever. This 13-year-old kid knows far more than most of us Americans. and That's how he could have a smile on his face. And yet we get upset when the family gathering doesn't go the way we want, when we have a little too much to drink at the office party, when we feel stressed out by how much presents we have to buy, we get all worked up over these things and we're missing out. We have more in common with this 13-year-old African boy, Danjuma, than we realize. Because the same Savior that died for him is the same Savior that died for us. The foot Uh, The ground at the foot of the cross is absolutely level. There's no one better than anyone else. We're all a part of the low. And when we accept that, we then can see Jesus for who he really is. And we see that Jesus is not insulted by being part of the low. He instead uses that to serve. And so we've got to go and serve to be a blessing to others. Because then as we take the low road, as we accept this, God exalts us. And then we have joy like shepherds who have seen an angel and have met the Messiah. That's what I want for you this Christmas. I want you to find your meaning, not in your romance, not in your job, not in your clothing, not in your bank account, not even in a good reputation. I want you to find your meaning in Jesus Because I know that then for you, you will have the joy that I think you want and that I know God has for you. So Father, I pray that you would help each of us to seek our meaning by seeking Jesus. That we would put ourselves first and foremost in this gospel story and allow it to identify us. That we would realize that we are more sinful than we could ever have imagined and yet we are more loved than we could ever dream And that we would see Jesus and his death on the cross and it would absolutely humble us and yet make us ecstatic at the same time because our sin is forgiven. We are no longer separated from our creator. The curtain has been ripped. The door is open. We can come in to be with you and have true joy. The joy like a 13-year-old African boy has. God, we want that. We long for that. Forgive us, Father, when our eyes are so much on the things of this world that we get frustrated and disappointed. Forgive us when we compare ourselves to others, thinking we're either better or worse than we really are. Instead, help us to see ourselves from your side of heaven and to see that you delight to not only identify with the lowly, but to invite us to follow Jesus and to exalt us out of our sinful state. And that would then carry us through not only this Christmas season, but through every season of life. So Father, help us to seek our meaning by seeking Jesus. And it's in his name we pray together. Amen.